Our scripture reading this morning comes from Zechariah, the third chapter. Zechariah is not hard to find when you remember that it is the second to the last book in the Old Testament. So if you find Matthew and Malachi as the bridge between old and new, Zechariah will be right before Malachi. Zechariah, the third chapter, as we attend to the series we've been considering of God dwelling in the midst of His people. Hear the Word of God found in Zechariah chapter 3. Then He showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And he said to him, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. May God add his blessing to the reading of this word. May we ask it in prayer. O Holy Spirit, enlighten our minds, quicken our hearts, enable and strengthen our hands and feet so we might respond to this word according to your will. And I ask that you would help me to know nothing but Christ in Him crucified. These things we pray in His name. Amen. Please be seated. Kids, I I have a frog in my throat, but it's not in danger of jumping out. But I learned from my daughter, who was an accomplished ballerina, that when one coughs, one coughs into the crook of one's elbow. So if you see me do that, um, bear with me. Uh, We have in this scripture text from Zechariah 3, perhaps the most dramatic scene in all of the Old Testament. And it is a courtroom scene. Now, there's a reason that courtroom scenes capture our attention. And courtroom scenes are found in mystery novels and in TV dramas. And uh, often our attention is 
captured in real life. I took a sabbatical one week a number of years ago and went to a remote place to study, and it happened to be the week of the OJ trial verdict. And so I didn't get anything done. Because, after all, courtroom scenes are compelling. And the reason is the drama. You, you can't get better drama than a courtroom scene. The prosecution presents the case. The defense counters the evidence presented and presents alternative theories other than the guilt of the defendant. And then after the case has been argued, that there comes that moment when the judge or the jury pronounces what? The verdict. Nothing is easy to imagine as being as high a drama as the verdict in a courtroom. And, and even when there's a lot of drama outside the courtroom, which there is often these days with public trials, it all serves simply to feed what goes on when the jury says, we find the defendant, or the judge asks, what say you? Well, here in Zechariah 3, as I said, we obviously have a courtroom scene. God himself is the judge. Satan is the prosecutor. Joshua, who's not just Joe Israelite, but the high priest of Israel, a descendant of Aaron, he is the defendant. And Zechariah is the court reporter, describing to us all that is transpiring. And as we will see, there are other characters present as well. And this trial has to do whether, with whether Joshua is morally fit to stand in God's presence and represent the nation of Israel. Because if Joshua can't stand in the presence of the Lord, then it will do Israel no good for the Lord to be present in Israel. And we are interested in this because this is precisely the matter that is before all of us, before all people. You know, every man and woman and boy and girl should or does want to know God. God who is the source of all beauty and delight, who is holy, who is righteous, that everything that is right is right in God. He's infinite love. Who would not want to know such a God? And yet, how can we stand in the presence of such a God? And this is precisely the question with which Martin Luther wrestled and found wanting all the answers that had been given to him by his theological training of his day. And he returned to the Scriptures to answer that question. How can I stand in the presence of of such a God. Now, many people would answer the question by just simply saying, well, there is no problem to stand in the presence of God. Because uh, God's holiness uh, does not uh, compel him to judge me, or because his righteousness shows nothing lacking in me, and there is, there's no problem. 
You, you see, in the, in the person who says that, who says there is no problem for a human being to stand in the presence of God, that person has ironically made God less so that there is no compelling reason to know and stand in the presence of such a God. You see, the kind of God that the Bible sets forth as who God is is both at the one time glorious and yet hopeless unless there is some answer to the question. How can we stand in the presence of God? I want us to look at this trial this morning and see God's answer to that question. How is it that we can stand in His presence? How is it that He can be present with us so that we are blessed and not ruined? And it's uh, so compelling and so visual to see in such a courtroom drama as this. Let's first get to know the actors, okay? Uh, The uh, vision begins... Uh, with Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. Now, Joshua with the high priest and Zerubbabel, the descendant of David, were among those Israelites who were brought back from captivity in Babylon, according to the book of Ezra. And he's standing before a figure called the angel of the Lord. Now, if you paid attention, you would, or if you noticed to the, the details, you would see that the angel of the Lord is a very important figure. And in fact, the angel of the Lord begins to assume divine prerogatives. Uh, Throughout, you can see this progressing. The angel of the Lord is uh, the one who is first noted as standing before uh, Joshua. And uh, and the angel of the Lord uh, is uh, 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 the one who uh, acts to uh, assure Joshua. Uh, in verse 6, and you, as you go through the drama, you'll see that the angel Lord is in fact acting and speaking as God himself. And in the Old Testament, perhaps some of you have learned this from other Bible lessons, that the angel of the Lord is identified so closely with God himself that theologians will describe the angel of the Lord as a Christophany, that is, a pre-incarnate manifestation of the second person of the Godhead. Because the angel of the Lord doesn't replace Jehovah in this story, but we see a differentiation between the angel of the Lord and God. So two characters already, Joshua, the angel of the Lord, and then Satan standing at the right hand of Joshua to accuse him. Uh, You who are familiar with the book of Job will remember that Job had access to God's divine counsels, his heavenly throne room, uh, his, uh, his, his, uh, his uh, glorious dwelling place in the invisible heavens that uh, Satan uh, had access to bring an accusation against God's servant Job in the opening two chapters of, of the book of Job. Well, this is similar here. We see eventually as the time of Christ comes that Satan is banished from such an opportunity. But here he is playing the role which the book of Revelation describes as the accuser of the brethren. Satan is accusing Joshua, and uh, we are not told immediately the basis of the accusation, but we learn it's because Joshua is a shabby priest. Joshua is dirty, he's filthy. 
And God answers Satan's accusation. So God enters as a character in this drama. And uh, then uh, eventually there's a reference to uh, those who are standing with Joshua. So presumably Joshua has an entourage, perhaps of other priests. And then the the last couple of characters to note, uh, one is um, the promise of those in verse 7. If you walk in my ways and keep my charge, you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing there. So there's a, a set of characters, those who are standing there. Who are those characters? Well, they are the the divine council, the holy ones who surround God. They are God's attendants, as we see in parts of the Bible like Revelation chapters 4 and 5. And so the result of what God is doing is giving Joshua free access to God's heavenly throne presence. And then the final character we see in the story is somebody whose name is Branch. Branch, a name given to the Davidic descendant who God would raise up in the last days to deliver and to rule over his people. Those are the characters. Now, let's make sense of the actions that are taking place. Joshua is introduced. Satan is accusing. And the argument phase of the trial is very brief in this story. If this was a courtroom drama made for TV, it wouldn't be a 60-minute show. It would be a 30-minute or less even. Um, the, the, the evidence is not argued out. I get It stands up what we, we, we call in legal terms prima facie evidence. That it speaks for itself. There's no refuting it. But God has a word for the prosecution, even before the evidence is argued. The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. You see, uh, the judge puts a gag order on the prosecution at the very commencement of the trial. And, And why is it? It is not because God needs contended with for the verdict, but rather he has a resolution that the verdict will require. God said, Satan, the Lord has chosen, the Lord has chosen Jerusalem, and the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebukes you. You see, God's answer to Satan's rebuke is that God's divine favor is upon His people and is upon His city once again. And we've been looking at this in all the previous uh, visions that Zechariah has reported. In chapter 1, verse 3, at the very beginning, God said, Return to me and I will return to you. Israel, who had been brought back from exile in Babylon, who needed to turn their hearts toward the Lord, had a promise. If they turned their hearts to the Lord, the Lord would return to them. In verse 16 of chapter 1, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it. See, God is declaring that He is going to return and dwell with His people. 
they would be his people and he would be their God and he would dwell in their midst, which is the sum of all the Old Testament promises, God has declared as happening. Chapter 2, verse 4. Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around her, declares the Lord, and I will be glory in her midst. The glory cloud that had once inhabited Israel in the wilderness and had once filled the temple that Solomon had built was now going to return to the people brought back from exile. And in chapter 2, verses 10 and 12, it's in a climactic way stated, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come, and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day, and you shall be my people, and I will dwell in your midst. You see, Satan's word was not irrelevant, but it wasn't the last word. Because the Lord who chose Jerusalem had a better word. To speak. The word of Satan was only as good as the blood of Abel to condemn. But God has a better word. Verse 3 Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. There's your prima facie evidence. A priest to minister before God had to be pure and holy. And Joshua's garments, filthy as they are, represent his state of moral filth. But not just his. As I said, he's not just Joe Israelite. He's the high priest of Israel. He's the one who had the greatest access to the Lord himself. And if he could not stand in the presence of the Lord, it wouldn't do anybody any good. You see, it it was common in the ancient world, and it is eternally true that if we are to know God, we need a mediator. And Aaron the high priest was the mediator to represent God to the people. He had the names of Israel carved on the epaulets on his uniform and, and on the breastplate that he wore. So he represented God before the people, and he represented God to the people. But he's filthy. He's morally unfit. In the British legal system, um, I learned there's a difference between a barrister and a solicitor. And um, a, 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 a solicitor is somebody that can write a contract for you or solve a legal matter of, of, uh, of, of, with some filing or another. But if you need an advocate in court, You have to go to a barrister. In fact, your solicitor will take you to a barrister. You see, but here God is not leaving it to to someone else to resolve this dilemma in which Joshua stands. He is both solicitor and barrister and judge in this matter. And he commands the angel... And those who are standing in the heavenly courts to remove the filthy garments from Joshua. And in doing so, God says, I have taken away your iniquity from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Not only did Joshua get a bath, 
but he got royal garments. You know, the book of Isaiah says he will give you beauty for ashes. And this is the great exchange we see here for the sake of Joshua the high priest, but not just for Joshua, but for his people. And they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. In the uh, original design of Aaron's garments, if you look at Exodus 28, you'll see that he wore a, a turban on his head and, and there was a, um, a, a metal, if you will, strung between threads on his turban and it said, holy to the Lord. And now he is being restored to that very kind of status in spite of the sins of the people of Israel that gained them exile. And then the drama turns to the future because the present dilemma has been resolved. In verse 6, the angel of the Lord assures Joshua, the high priest, if you walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. You see here covenant renewal, that the angel of the Lord, God speaking in the angel of the Lord, says that if you will walk in my ways, you will minister to me as a priest, and you will have access, as I mentioned earlier, to the the courts of heaven, to be in the presence of the Lord on behalf of the people. How is that going to be possible since before It was not possible. Since before, exile had been their sentence. God is going to introduce someone called the branch. From Isaiah chapter 11, Jeremiah chapter 23, and other places we learn this descendant of David, the branch, would be restored to the throne of Israel. And the branch would rule over God's people so that Joshua the high priest could remain faithful. In Deuteronomy 17, the Davidic king was supposed to write the law of God in his own copy and rule according to it. You see, the the king of Israel was supposed to keep the people of God walking the ways of God, and this branch will do it. And in verse 9, we're told that a stone, for behold, on the stone that I've set before Joshua, On a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription. Now, what is this single stone with seven eyes? It's very likely, instead of a metal placed on Joshua's forehead, that it's a stone, a gem of some kind with with seven facets. And whenever you see seven in such mystical parts of the Bible, you should think somehow God is involved. And it's literally seven eyes, a stone with seven eyes. And and, and here we see the contrast, the contrast that makes all the difference. Satan looked upon Joshua the high priest for condemnation. But God looked perfectly and fully upon Joshua, his his high priest, in vindication, in acquittal, in justification. It reminds us of what Paul said, if he uh, who has the right to condemn us, according to Romans 8, doesn't condemn us, who can bring a charge against God's elect? The Supreme Court has declared Joshua absolved, and the seven eyes of the Lord looking with favor upon Joshua, 
tell us that. And God is going to remove the sins of his people in a single day. And because of that, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. I don't know if you grew up in a front porch culture or a back porch culture, but there's nothing more better, as they say, at the end of a day or in a cool, breezy morning to just sit in your favorite place of peace and happiness and know all is right with the world, at least for the time, and enjoy the company of special friends and family. And the reason God can say that Israel is going to be able to invite their neighbors to come and sit under their vines and their fig trees is because peace and prosperity and blessedness will be the result of what God's going to do here. Well, perhaps that gives you a grasp of the drama that is playing out in this courtroom scene. But let me mention ways, the ways in which I see this most particularly speaking to us this morning. All of these things are true because of the mere fact that God has chosen to dwell among His people. That God has promised to dwell in the midst of His people. And the first thing this chapter would teach us is that uh, since God has promised to dwell in the midst of His people, we have to acknowledge our shameful condition. Remember Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, he, he was ushered into the very same place where Joshua is, into the councils of heaven, into the throne room of the Lord, in the heavenly of heavenlies. And Joshua said, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. And you know that in terms of steps toward God, that's the first step. The first step is down. The first step is acknowledging that in the, in the presence of God, apart from any divine solution, there is no alternative but shame. Remember in the garden in Genesis chapter 3, God having made the man and woman in his image and placed them in the paradise. And while he was absent from them, they had become a law to themselves and sinned against him. When God came to them to be with them, to fellowship with his image bearers, Moses tells us they hid themselves. And God called out, where are you? And when they came out, they said, we were naked and we were ashamed. You know, shame is um, not as powerful in our culture, perhaps, as it is in many cultures around the world. Most cultures have a higher premium on shame. And I, I suppose if you're old enough, you will, you, will, you will think, well, there was a time when our culture had a higher premium on shame. Jeremiah talks about the danger of a lost blush. As Glenn prayed in a world that calls evil good and good evil, shame is sometimes hard to get at, but, but deep down, there, most of us are ready to recognize if there were a way out. We're ready to recognize our shame. What makes people resistant to recognizing their shame, whether it's shame for the way we've treated one another, shame at our own, own moral 
uh, our character weaknesses, shame in our failures in life, shame in our sins against God. What makes us reticent is not having an alternative, not having a way out. I can tell you, I think men respond to shame not by acknowledging shame more typically. They tend to respond to shame with violence or aggression or anger. Because if you can push the accuser back on his heels, then you get some breathing room and you don't have to not acknowledge your shame. But it's, 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 even though it looks like anger, it's still based in shame. But that's not where God leaves us, does He? Because we not only see we have to acknowledge our shame, this is an open and shut case, there's no argument to be made, there's no there's no evidence for the defense, but what we see next is there is an acquittal, and so we must trust in God's acquittal. We must trust in God's acquittal. If God is for us, who can be against us? Uh, Joshua did not have a manufactured apology. He did not have a PR firm which tried to spin, minimize, redirect. In fact, he is silent before his accuser. But he is given an acquittal in which he can fully and finally rest. Because the garments that he has aren't the garments made by Bezalel and Moses. The garments he now wears are the gift of God himself, of pure garments, and a hat on top of his head that says holy, and that has a jewel that says God looks upon him with favor. You think of what Jude says, that, uh, that God is able to make us stand in his presence blameless with great joy. And, and, and you know, it's surprising, and I think many of you will probably recognize this, it's surprising how how hard it is sometimes to stand in God's presence blameless with great joy. We believe there's still a matter to be dealt with before the Lord. God bids us come, and uh, we say we don't have a dress. (laughs) Um, I I have a bad haircut. (laughs) You know, we come reticently, hesitantly, And uh, so uh, many will tell you, and I believe it's true, that the greatest challenge for the the Christian as well as the seeker is simply believing more and more what God has said is true. And, you know, what's difficult is Satan is still in business. He's been bound, he's been plundered, but he still has limited ability as the accuser of the brethren. And Satan never tells out-and-out falsities. Satan is not um, uh, simply the father of lies, not, accepting what the, not taking exception to what the Bible says, but he's the father of lies because he's the father of half-truths and partial truths and temporal truths. But God speaks a better word. He gives garments of loveliness and praise, and this wasn't just for the, 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 the high priest. It was symbolically for the nation because Israel was a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What Aaron was, they were all. 
So we have to trust in the acquittal. We have to believe against the voices in the night. We have to believe against the voices that follow our failures and our frustrations. We have to believe what God has said rather than what the devil tells us about our fitness before God, our ability to change, whether we are worth God-loving or anybody to love for that matter. God's word is pure and true. And finally, we must experience God's glorious restoration. This is not merely a legal affair, although justification is a, a legal concept. But it is a personal affair. It is the presence of the living God coming to live with his people forever. What do you get when you get forgiveness from God? You get God. What do you get when you get uh, sanctification from God? You get God. What do you get when you get adoption from God? You get God. And the Christian faith is not simply a legal doctrine. It's not simply an ideal. What Luther uh, protested about, what, what the Protestant reformers uh, stepped forward boldly and at risk of their lives about was not simply an idea, but it was about a living, vital relationship with the living God. The one that makes his worshipers live, unlike the gods of the nations. Well, how is this all possible? Joshua was still a son of Aaron. Aaron, you know, of the golden calf. I tweeted this week, Exodus 32 worship, attendance and giving were great. That's the golden calf episode. Joshua is still a descendant of of Aaron. Zerubbabel is still a descendant of Manasseh and all the evil and wicked kings of Israel. Well, the writer of Hebrews tells us that Uh, we have a better high priest, one who did not have to atone for his own sin before he made atonement, but who himself was not of the line of Aaron, but of the line of the eternal king of righteousness, Melchizedek. And he made atonement once and for all by entering into the holy place made without hands in the place we're reading about here in Zechariah 3. Not just the earthly tabernacle, which had to be cleansed itself and which required annual sacrifices, but the the tabernacle of God in the heavenly realms, the heavenly throne room of God, the holy of holies, the where, where in heaven was where Christ made sacrifice once and for all. It is finished. But he is also not only a better high priest, he is the branch. He is the greater son of David. He is the one who subdues us to himself who defends us from all his and our enemies, and who rules and reigns over us so that we might be a people of God, secure, forever, accepted, loved, forgiven, and made even holy in God's presence. So it's really a great story, a great vision to see on Reformation Day that as God is returning to his people, It creates a problem. But God himself is the one who resolves that problem 
through an acquittal and a restoration to be the glorious sons and daughters of God that he created us to be. C.S. Lewis, in his essay, The Weight of Glory, speaks of, for him, what was the principal thing that drew him to God. He speaks of infinite joy. And he says, uh, you know, people normally don't venture to speak about infinite joy because it is so lovely, so, so delightful that it is, um, it is audacious to speak of its possibility. And so he said, we, we settle for lesser things. We make mud pies in the slums instead of spending a day at the beach. We, we dare not imagine how beautiful God is because if he is as beautiful as the scriptures say he is, there could be nothing mo- no more despairing than to never know him. But God, at one and the same time, tells us of his beauty, his gloriousness, the delights that are at his right hand. He tells us at one and the same time of his blessedness, while he also offers a provision to meet and know and to be a child of God. May God help us, make us able to accept the verdict, but the verdict of acquittal and the verdict of restoration to a glorious life that he has given us through his son, Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? Well, Lord, if you would count iniquity, sin against us, who would stand? Who can ascend the hill of the Lord except him who has clean hands and a pure heart? Who can inhabit your holy hill? Who can stand in your courts but the one who is perfect and righteous? God, we are immensely grateful that the righteous one, Jesus Christ, in his exalted, resurrected state, stands in your presence, praying for us, but also bringing us, for we are in him, and he is in you, and we dwell in your very presence through him. Help us to recognize the voice of the devil this week, the raspy, sneering half-truths that hinder us in our consciences. Help us to believe that there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So that by the Spirit which raised Jesus from the dead, you can cause us to truly live for you. We pray it in his name. Amen.